Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. This week, we're delighted to announce the publication of a new abridged edition of Leila El Haddad's classic 2010 book, Gazamom. This abridgment has an elegant new cover and a new introduction from Leila El Haddad. It's retailing at $21 in the United States, and it's a lot easier to ship than the older, larger version. Much of Gazamom, both the longer version and the new abridgment, deals with the many woes that Leila, like all Gaza's 1.6 million Palestinians, has getting in and out of her homeland. Her husband, Yassin, is also a Palestinian, but he doesn't have the all-important Gaza-Palestinian ID card since Israel still controls these and won't give them to the spouses of people who have them. So when Leila wants to travel back to her family's home in Gaza, she has to leave Yassin behind at their current residence in the United States. The only way that Gaza's Palestinians can travel into or out of Gaza is via the Rafah crossing into Egypt. These days, since the coup that the military launched in Egypt a few weeks ago, it is extremely hard for Gazans to get Egypt's permission to pass in or out of Gaza. Gaza's people are locked more tightly than ever into a space that feels like a massive open-air prison camp. Israel still controls everything that goes in or out of Gaza, goods as well as people. And ever since 2005, it has maintained a tight siege that has closed down Gaza's once humming small manufacturing sector nearly completely. To mark the publication of the new version of Leila's book, I asked Emily Kuhn, our fabulous summer intern here at Just World Books, to choose a couple of passages from the book to read for our podcast series. She chose two passages that Leila wrote at the end of 2006, during one of the very tiresome treks she made with her two-year-old son Yusuf in tow, just to get back through Rafa into Gaza City. In the following excerpt, El Haddad recounts the frustration and humiliation of waiting for the border to her home country to open, with no reliable information about when it might happen, all the while trying to explain what is going on to Yusuf, who is starting to realize what it really means to be Palestinian. The Border of Dispossession, Al Arish, Egypt, November 21st, 2006. After returning from Doha on Sunday, my family and I drove off to the Egyptian border town of Al Arish yesterday a five-hour drive from Cairo and a 30-minute drive from the Rafa crossing. Al-Arish is the closest and largest Egyptian town to the border. During times of extended closure, like this summer and last year, it becomes a makeshift Palestinian slum. Thousands of penniless Palestinians, having depleted their savings and never anticipating the length of the closure, end up on the streets. Shopkeepers and taxi drivers relayed story after story to us from this summer. In response, the Egyptian police no longer allow Palestinians driving up from Cairo past the Egyptian port city of Al-Kantara if the border is closed and Al-Arish becomes too crowded. They turn it into a ghetto, that, and the Israelis didn't want them blowing up holes in the border again to get through, explained Ayman, a local broker. Last night, we carried false hopes, transmitted down the taxi driver's grapevine, the ones who run the Cairo-Rafa route that the border would open early this morning. So we kept our bags packed and awoke early to the crashing waves of the Mediterranean 
the same ones that just a few kilometers down were crashing down on Gaza's besieged shores. But it is 4, then 5, then 6 a.m., and the border does not open. And my heart begins to twinge as I recall the last time I tried to cross Rafa, how I could not for 55 days of aloneness and displacement, during which Yusuf learned to lift himself up in the world and took his first fleeting steps in a land that was not ours. The shopkeeper down the street tells us he hears the border may open Thursday, but you know how it is, all rumors. No one can be certain. Some say tomorrow, some say Thursday, but in the end, no one ever knows. Even the Egyptian border officials admit that, ultimately, the orders come from the Israeli side. It's as though they take pleasure as we languish in the uncertainty, their perpetual never-knowing, as though they intend for us to sit and think and drive ourselves crazy with thought. Even the Palestinian soccer team has been unable to leave Gaza to attend the Asian Games because of the Rafah closure. No one is exempt. Peasant or pro football player, we are equally vulnerable. So, as always, we wait. We wait our entire lives as Palestinians. If not for a border to open, for a permit to be issued, for an incursion to end, for a time when we do not have to wait any longer. What is so frightening about borders, and particularly Rafa, that drives chills down my spine? They are, after all, crossings like any other crossing, I tell myself. What differentiates one meter of sound from the next beyond that border? They are exactly the same. It is history and life and identity and occupation and isolation that changes them. For Palestinians, borders are a reminder of our vulnerability and non-belonging, of our displacement and dispossession. It is a reminder, a painful one, of homeland lost and of what could happen if what remains is lost again. When we are lost again, we lose a little bit of ourselves every time we wait to cross and then cross. So it is here, 50 kilometers from Rafa's border, that I am reminded once again of displacement. I have become that displaced stranger, to quote Palestinian poet Murid Barakuti. Displacement is meant to be something that happens to someone else, he says. To refugees, the world cares to forget. When the border closes, we are one day closer to becoming those forgotten refugees. Yassin cannot even get as far as I have to Egypt to feel alone. He feels alone every day and is rejected every day, finding belonging in other, non-static things, family, love, and work. But the Palestinian never forgets his aloneness. He is always reminded of it on borders. That, above all, is why I hate Rafa crossing. That is why I hate borders. They remind me that I, like all Palestinians, belong everywhere and nowhere at once. They are the borders of dispossession. Sixteen days later, Al-Hadad, her parents, and Yusuf finally managed to make it through the crossing to Gaza. In the meantime, as rumors flew about when the border would finally open, they rented a small flat and anxiously checked the news at every opportunity. At one point, they were allowed through the Egyptian side of the crossing, only to be told that the Palestinian side was not open and they would have to return to Al-Arish, where they had been staying. In the following excerpt, written a few days after their return to Gaza, El-Haddad describes the dangerously chaotic scene of the crossing itself and the dehumanizing effect of being held in limbo for so long. There is method in this madness. 
Gaza City, Palestine, December 10th, 2006. So we're back, and I think I'm only now beginning to recover from what I call the Rafa Crossing hangover. You feel fine at first, and once you finally get home and set your bags down, you think, hey, that wasn't so bad. Then, around 6 p.m., it hits you like a sack of rice. First, your back gives way, and it feels like a truck rounded over. Then you begin to lose sensation in your legs as they go numb. Disorientation, and soon, collapse. By 8 p.m., we were all out cold, and I woke up the next day not knowing where I was, and with a headache, no amount of coffee could fix. Yusuf woke up and walked to the door leading to our balcony instead of the house, not realizing where he was either. It took us a few days to regain consciousness, finally. The border itself was a picture of agony. Because of the sheer numbers of people waiting to cross, the Egyptians had sectioned off the crowds via several roadblocks. Our final goal of making it into Gaza seemed formidable at 7 a.m. As we arrived and saw thousands upon thousands of passengers trying to get through in any way possible. When my parents realized they wouldn't be crossing anytime soon, with a donkey cart full of luggage behind them, Yusuf and I went ahead with only our passports and my backpack, only to find about 5,000 people amassed in front of the Egyptian gate, awaiting entry. Only a few were being allowed in at a time, because ultimately the buses that were sent off into the Palestinian side could accommodate about 80 people, procedure passed down from the Israelis. As we reached the outside of the gate, all I saw in front of me was people climbing on top of each other, looping their bags around and through the crowds to try to make it to the front. Simply making it to that gate was a task. It was every person for himself. In the chaos, one woman forgot her daughter, about Yusuf's age, and I picked her up, lest she be crushed under the thousands of legs. A few hours later, I made contact with my parents. They had miraculously made their way to the front while I remained in the back. With a lot of yelling and jostling, I managed to wind my way through the crowds to join them, and, of course, there was more waiting ahead. By the time we finally made it to the Palestinian side, it was about 1 p.m. We waited in the infamous bus for the Israelis to give the approval for us to pass. Apparently, the video monitoring extends to the outside of the terminal as well. Blue Berade EU monitors watched intently. I looked around at the faces of each of the people on our bus, including a man who had metal rods in his legs after his fifth leg operation in three years. I couldn't help but think how no one will realize what all of these people have been through, just to return to their homes. The crossings closed shortly after we made it across, and thousands remained stranded behind us. I looked back, feeling for one second I had abandoned them, not knowing what more I could do. I keep getting asked how it feels to be back. My first impression was feeling as if I were sucked into a black hole or vacuum. Very eerie going into a place that has methodically been turned into one of the world's most isolated. You feel sort of distant and displaced and unsettled. And of course, there is a mixture of exhilaration and relief and uncertainty. But you also feel accomplished, as though by merely being able to cross, you have exercised an act of awesome proportions, defying the far-reaching grip of the occupation in even the remotest and seem most seemingly insignificant of ways. I think the most disturbing and overwhelming feeling of all is having to come to grips with the realization that your life, and how you live that life, continue to be controlled wholly and absolutely by an occupier, 
and that its ability to deny you entry to your own home so abruptly, so arbitrarily, and yet so methodically, largely because of the acquiescence and complicity of the world, has become so accepted. That was Emily Kuhn, reading from pages 185 and 197 of Leila El-Haddad's book, Gaza Mom, Abridged Edition. You can buy the whole book from our website at www.justworldbooks.com. I'm Helena Cobbin. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.